0: and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. My name is Sarah Lazar. I'm a web editor and reporter for In These Times, and I'm honored to be hosting today's conversation. Now it is my pleasure to bring in Cliff Connor. Um, Clifford Connor is a historian of science at the School of Professional Studies at CUNY Graduate Center. He is the author of A People's History of Science, um, published by Bold Type Books in 2005, and biographies of three revolutionaries, Jean-Paul Marat, Arthur O'Connor, and Colonel Despard. And of course, he is the author of The Tragedy of American Science, which we are here to discuss today. Um, before we get started, I just wanna share a few of my own thoughts and reflections about The Tragedy of American Science. Um, so The Tragedy of American Science It's premised on the idea that the US institution of science is not some pure uncorrupted field that exists above the fray, motivated solely by the pursuit of knowledge. Rather, it is embedded in some of the most violent and destructive forces of our time, namely capitalism and US militarism. Um, Of course, I'm talking about capital S science as an institution, not as an ideal of methodology. But the book really makes a strong case that there is no area of capital S science that is untouched by these forces. The book goes through systematically and eviscerates any illusion that a number of seemingly innocuous and uncontroversial areas of scientific pursuit are as good as they seem, Um, from nutrition science to the field of economics to US think tanks to finding cures for diseases. Um, None of these things are spared the critical perspective of the book. Um, The book also shows no tolerance for widely used euphemisms that mask very large-scale destruction, words like nuclear modernization and surgical strikes. All of that said, ultimately this is not a pessimistic book, Um, rather it is built around the radical proposal that science can be used for good, it can improve human life and happiness, but this requires a transformation of our political and economic system. So we must do away with the forces that corrupt science, capitalism and US militarism. And only when science is controlled by the public for the well-being of the public, can we approach with curiosity and open eyes important philosophical questions. What is the highest purpose of science and how can it be used for good? And at a time that we're dealing with the uh, dual existential crises of the COVID-19 pandemic and the climate crisis, these questions could not be higher stakes. So um, with that, um, we we thought that the best way to talk about the book would be for me to just sort of have a conversation with Cliff about some of the main themes and ideas presented in the book. So I want to start with a very broad question for you, Cliff, which is, why did you decide to pursue this line of inquiry into the tragedy of American science? What made it feel urgent at this moment? Um, What do you think are some of the biggest misperceptions about science that you're working to counter? to counter today.
2: Well, thank you for that introduction. I thought uh, your take on the book was uh, was right on target. Um, well, actually, I, I didn't start thinking about this book at this moment. This moment is quite different from the moment I began working on the book. Uh, the moment I started working on the book was around four years ago, and the main things that were going on was the rise of the uh, the Trump campaign. And uh, it was just the uh, the rise of irrationalism and conspiracy theories and anti-logic uh, and all the anti-science demagogy that made the idea of this book seem useful, and I thought it might be. And at the same time, you had on the other side, you had the beginnings of, uh, because of the Bernie Sanders campaign, a, uh, people began thinking about socialism, and uh, I found that encouraging. So... Uh, that was that moment, that's why I started the book, but now it's being published, and this moment is entirely different, uh, and yet I think it's more timely than ever. Uh, of course, when I'm talking about this moment, I'm talking about in the in the middle of this dystopia that we're in, the, uh, the pandemic, and uh, also the upsurge of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's a transformative movement uh, moment, In the national conversation. And that gives me hope that uh, this book may have something to add to that, uh, to the national conversation.
1: Um, Yeah, it it ended up very timely, even if you didn't um, exactly anticipate the conditions under which it would end up being published.
2: Yeah, by the way, you probably know this, Uh, the book was supposed to come out before the pandemic, but the pandemic, delayed everything. Uh, The printers didn't want to die going to work printing it. And I certainly support them in that. But uh, uh, so at that point, Haymarket came to me and said, would you like to take advantage of this delay to write an extra chapter on the pandemic? And so I was very happy to be able to do that. And it makes the book uh, all the more timely.
1: Yeah. Cool. Um, Well, thank you so much for that. So I thought that um, we could get into some of the major themes of the book. Um, So you told me that the book might be summed up in two words, corporatization and militarization. So as you see it, what's the fundamental problem with corporate science? Is it fair to say that all of American science has been corrupted by corporatization? Is this a particularly American phenomenon? Is that why the word tragedy of American science is in the title?
2: There's a bunch of good questions there. I'll try to unpack them, so to speak. Um, well, the fundamental problem with the corporatization of science is that it's the domination by corporate interests that corrupts science. Scientific, uh, The ideal of scientific research is that it's supposed to be unbiased investigation. Uh, it's not supposed to be some way that you can use a method to prove something you want to prove. Uh, And yet that's the way it's used. uh, You've heard the phrase uh, science in the public interest. Well, that's what it's supposed to be. But what we really have is uh, in the United States and and really around the world is science in the private interest. So you have uh, these techniques of science, scientific research, that are actually being corrupted to serve um, corporate or political agendas. So I, I consider uh, privatized science, which is what we're talking about, to be an oxymoron. It's uh, just a contradiction in terms. And by that, I include all research done directly by corporations in corporate laboratories or research that's primarily funded by corporations. And that tends to be just about everything. Um, Do you give m- you a- oh, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, please go ahead.
2: I was just going to say that there's some examples of this manipulation of research to, to favor corporate products. Uh, one of the first ones that came along was the tobacco science that claimed that it could disprove uh, cigarettes, cause cancer. Smoking kills people. Nicotine is not addictive. Secondhand smoke is, is not dangerous. Uh, and then the next thing I can think of in the line of these uh, uh, corporate science uh, big examples is uh, the chemical industry's promotion of pesticide use in agriculture. And then when um, Rachel Carson uh, wrote a book, Silent Spring, that, uh, that exposed the dangers of DT, DDT use, uh, then the chemical industry came out with, uh, all their scientists came down on her like a ton of bricks to try to uh, uh, you know uh, deny what she was showing. And then the most recent example, I think, that we have to think about is the corruption of science that led to the marketing of addictive uh, opioids that killed tens, hundreds of thousands of people. We can talk about that more later if you want to.
1: Great. Um, I would love to just ask a quick follow-up. Um, you said that privatized science is a contradiction in terms. Do you mind Just saying a little bit more about why you say that.
2: Yeah, well, as I say, uh, if science is devoted to an agenda uh, beforehand, in other words, uh, uh, the ideal of science is that you're asking a question and you're looking at it with an open mind and trying to figure out what the answer is. But uh, in these cases that I've, uh, especially the examples I just gave, it was the misuse of science to try to prove something that. A corporate agenda wanted to to prove, as a way of supporting its products and keeping it out of, uh, you know, being sued by customers and uh, all kinds of things.
1: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I think a theme that I really appreciated throughout your book is just this idea that um, the only way to ensure that science is able to serve its highest purpose and serve the well-being of people as if it's under the control of the people. And when it's sort of beholden to corporate private interests, um, it is liable to be pretty horribly misused. Um, But before before we get too far into the subject, I do want to um, zoom out and talk a little bit about the second half of the book, which focuses on the militarization of science, um, you know, in a country where our history of militarism is inextricably tied to colonization and racism and um, some of the most horrible forces on earth, um, that you know the second half of your book really, really spoke to me. Um, it was uh, troubling and fascinating. And I was hoping that you could just talk a little bit of the role of militarization in science. and in particular, if you could explain the chapter title, science harnessed to the chariot of destruction. Um, What's the fundamental problem as you see it?
2: Okay. Why don't I start? I'll I'll read a very, very brief quote from the book. Uh, Just one sentence that really sums it up. Uh, Science and technology, rather than being the creative engines of human progress, have instead been reoriented toward destructive and anti-human ends. And that's what I mean by ch- uh, chain to the chariot of destruction. Um, the fundamental problem is that uh, the trillions, and, and let me stop right here and say, when we talk about a trillion dollars, it seems to roll off the tongue, but it's impossible for the human brain to conceive of how much that is. So uh, we're gonna be talking about trillions many times in this hour. And every time you hear it, just think, that's, that's a bizarre number. It's incredible, trillions of dollars in our national resources. That's what the United States government spends on, on science, primarily devoted to perfecting military technologies of death, finding new and better and more efficient ways to kill people in larger numbers. And that's a tragedy. Uh, from thermonuclear bombs and missiles to robot drones to uh, an, infinity, uh, an, an infinite variety of anti-personnel weaponry. And you mentioned euphemisms, that's one. When they talk about anti-personnel weapons, they just mean weapons that'll kill lots of people. Um, James Mattis, who until fairly recently was the defense, uh, uh, the uh, chairman of the de- defense uh, committee. He said explicitly that the purpose of the American Armed First Forces is to kill enemy soldiers. And he said, what we want, he said, my job as Secretary of Defense is to make the military more lethal. And so that's uh, what our science dollars in uh, Larger and larger numbers, trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars over the last few decades in science spending has gone to that purpose. I could say something about the absurdity uh, of the size of the military budget, the, uh, the absurdity, the enormity, the obscenity of the amount of money that the United States spends on the military, not just the science of it, but the science is at the base of it all. It's the scientific technology that then is the money is spent on to produce and build and develop. Um, Everybody's aware of this, but there's very little public policy discussion of the absurdity of the size of this military budget. and I, I, when they're discussing whether to whether to cut a seven hundred billion dollar budget by ten percent, I don't consider that very serious. Uh, just uh, there's a an, an analogy I can use. You've heard the old thing about the elephant in the room that everybody wants to ignore. Imagine in your living room you had a ten thousand pound. African elephant sitting there taking up 70% of the space, and you had to feed it to keep it alive, spending half your paycheck feeding it. And then somebody came along and said, oh, well, let's get rid of that 10,000-pound elephant and just have a 9,000-pound elephant in there. It really doesn't solve the problem. And the the thing that I think is most important to understand, I, I don't think there's anybody who wants to see Trump go more than I do. But in this coming election on this particular issue, it really doesn't matter whether you, whether you have a Democratic or Republican uh, you know, Senate or uh, administration or whatever, because whichever one is elected, we're gonna get a 700 billion, almost a trillion dollars, 700 billion dollar defense budget. And one more thing before we go ahead. I just wanted to say something about the, uh, the $700 billion. That's a tremendous underestimate uh, and it's deliberate. They don't want you to know how much they're spending on, on the military. If they really told you how much they're spending on the military, it would be more, uh, rather than being half of the discretionary budget of the whole country, including education and healthcare and everything, it would be two-thirds and instead of being 700 billion, it would be one and a quarter trillion dollars a year. And it's been doing that since about uh, I think about 2010. It, it, it went over the trillion dollar mark, and it's been there ever since. So we're spending a trillion dollars a year, and you can't imagine what a trillion dollars is. So think of it this way: It's three and a half billion dollars a day or... every second, $40,000 every second. It's just uh, beyond belief that we tolerate this, and yet we do tolerate it. It's the elephant in the room that we pretend isn't there.
1: Yeah, I must say it was pretty depressing to see the proposed 10% Pentagon budget cut so dramatically voted down. Um, You know, I think— 10% is such a modest goal, and what we actually need to begin to chip away at the immense harm that the U.S. military perpetrates around the world is far, far greater. We need to be setting our goals far higher. Um, The fact that there's such bipartisan consensus that so many of our public resources should be going into the military um, probably has a lot to do with why it generates so much scientific research in a society where private interests really drive scientific research. And I thought your book did a pretty devastating job of laying that out. Um, So on a related note, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about think tanks. I was really, really happy to see your discussion of think tanks. I think think tanks are often treated like neutral experts who are above the fray. I can't count how many times I've seen outlets like the New York Times quote people from ideologically right-wing think tanks as experts um, without providing context that they're conservative think tank or that they are funded by arms manufacturers or things like that. Um, I was really glad to see you take a critical perspective of many different kinds of think tanks Um, and to bring into question the whole institution of sort of the U.S. think tank and the social role they function. I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Uh, Actually, the the word think tanks, as you know, is just a kind of a clever way of saying uh, it's a a clever name for the, what do they call them, the uh, policy research institutes. And the reason I have a whole chapter on that is that uh, I think they're in the vanguard of the tragedy of American science and world science. I I always have to say, I should say contemporary science, not just American science. Uh, You you probably also noticed that before that chapter, I had a chapter on the academic industrial complex, where I talked about university science, and uh, the problem of how corporate funding has really corrupted university science. But the thing is, that outside the universities, things are much, much, much worse, and it's because of the think tanks. Uh, Just to go back and and give a little background, uh, the first think tanks were at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, The Brookings Institution is the one that comes to mind. It's one of the biggest, it's still around, still has the most prestige. And as you said, the whole idea of the think tank is it's supposed to be independent, Uh, but they're not, that's the problem. they're, they're bought and sold by corporations and uh, by other interests. Um, but the original think tanks it, were just supposed to be a new form of institution for intellectual activity and to come up with policy recommendations, which are often followed. Uh, they were called uh, universities without students. But in the 1930s, uh, they began to evolve, uh, although I'd say a better word would be devolved into something else, Uh, from just being offering neutral uh, policy ideas, they became advocacy organizations that lobbied for policies that served very specific corporate or political agendas. And then around World War II, uh, at the end of the war, uh, there were about 45 of these think tanks in the country. And then they just started taking off. Uh, Now there's about 2,000. And uh, as they've gotten bigger in number, they've gotten incredibly worse in quality. Uh, One of the turning points was in 1973 when the Heritage Foundation was founded. You asked me, to, I think, to name some of the worst offenders. And Heritage is right in there, as as I'll tell you a little bit more. Uh, it was disguised for legal purposes, but it was really nothing but a pure lobbying outfit. Uh, it had to disguise itself because the law says they can't keep their tax exempt, exempt status unless they, if they lobby. But they lobby all the time and get away with it. In the in 1980s and 90s, uh, after the uh, d- during the Reagan administration and Margaret Thatcher in England and so forth. Uh, think tanks devolved even further into naked public relations outfits, just totally media-oriented. Now, most of these, but I want to be sure to say, because I've been called out on this before, they're not all right-wing outfits. There are some liberal think tanks, there are some even progressive think tanks, and they do some good work. I don't want to uh, uh, go against that. But the right-wing outfits really dominate the field. And when you read in the New York Times and you look down at the attribution line of who the author is and they say they're from Heritage or Heartland or Cato or something like that, you should know what they are. And they are outright dishonest outfits uh, pretending pretending to be something they're not. In the 1960s, with the whole social upset of the Vietnam War situation is uh, began to be quite a uh, clash of uh, different ideas about society at that time. And the, uh, the conservative movement broke off, I mean, the, the liberal movement broke off a whole section of people that called themselves neoconservatives. And they formed think tanks. And then later you had the Koch brothers came along and formed a whole bunch of ultra-libertarian think tanks. And those are really what dominate think tank uh, uh, culture today. In the 60s, the, uh, the the conscious intent of the think tank movement was to create a counter intelligentsia that could counter the uh, what they thought of was the Uh, intolerably liberal intelligentsia of the universities, and so that's why they set up these institutions outside the universities. One of the most dangerous think tanks was, uh, well, sort of a think tank, because I think it didn't call itself a think tank, but it really functioned as one, was called PNAC, P-N-A-C, the Project for a New American Century. PNAC provided the, uh, the ideology and the cadre for the Bush-Cheney administration uh, and its war on terror, uh, which has since morphed into the forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and all over the world. Another is the Heritage Foundation. Well, we mentioned that before. That provided the ideology and the cadre for the Reagan administration. And more recently, it was the Heritage Foundation that shows the foot soldiers for the Trump Administration that's running the country today. Even before Trump was elected, the Heritage Foundation operatives were soliciting and collecting and stocking and vetting resumes in order to stock the Trump administration with right-wing appointees across the government. A really good example is uh, Kellyanne Conway. Now, people think of Kellyanne Conway and they they laugh, uh, but. You know, you think she was not an accidental figure on the stage of history. She was very consciously chosen for her job to be the uh, spokesperson for the regime. And uh, she was a longtime heritage operative, and uh, so that, that was uh, a, a good example to keep in mind. These All of these characters, you wonder where did they crawl out of the woodwork? They didn't crawl out by themselves. They were collected by the Heritage Foundation, and uh, Trump had no way to, to know anything, so he just took the road for it, and that's who's running his, his government. Uh, one more, mm-hmm. the a Heartland Institute is the one that specializes in climate change denial. And, <laughs> of course, they claim to be independent. Uh, they try to hide their funding, but uh, it's impossible to hide. All of their funding comes from the fossil fuels industries. And then I mentioned the Koch brothers. Well, they, they're behind a whole slew of these ultra-libertarian think tanks. Now, I mentioned the Cato Institute. You have to know that that was a name change. It was originally the Charles Koch Foundation, and it became the Cato Institute. So there you go. That's Oh, one more thing. Let me read uh, one thing about think tanks that I ended the chapter on. The whole operation has been founded on dishonesty and its purpose has been Robin Hood's in reverse, to transfer the vast wealth of the American economy from the households of the many to the bank accounts of the few. And with regard to American science, in the process of perverting the intellectual vocation the right wing intelligentsia has facilitated a political assault on empirical reality and rationality in doing so it has made significant strides toward turning science into spin and sapping the power of knowledge to ameliorate the human condition so
1: yeah it was it was very satisfying for me to read that part of your book because um you know, I've been tracking the role of the Heritage Foundation and co-funded organizations like ALEC and, um, you know, opposing the idea that workers should be able to sue their employers if they get sick because they're forced to work during COVID-19. Um, Heritage, ALEC, all these co-funded orgs were out very, very early, just weeks after the global pandemic began, um, saying workers should go back to work. We shouldn't have a shelter in place. Um, And, you know, calling for policies that very much put poor and working class people in harm's way. Um, So, you know, it's this funny thing where you can form an organization with a bunch of people with PhDs and then call it a think tank. And then it has this mystique of being experts and being grounded in ideas of uh, intellectual rigor and science. But it really is, in many cases, just... um, a fancy veneer for a lobbying outfit or yeah. for, for a PR firm.
2: As a matter of fact, if you want to talk about the Koch brothers uh, network, uh, you could actually consider the Republican party a Koch brother operation now, or a Koch brother organization, because they put together, the, it's not just their billions of dollars, they're a couple of the richest. Well, of course, one of them's dead now, but the Koch brothers together were a couple, each was one of the richest people in, in the United States. And they put billions of their many, many, many billions into buying politicians and buying political movements and uh, on on, and on. But not only that, they formed a coalition of 500 other people almost as wealthy as them. And they pool all that money and they basically bought the Republican Party. They have these meetings every year where uh, Mike Pence goes and reports back to them as to what they're doing and how they're serving their interests. So they call it the GOP, I call it the KDN, the Coke Donors Network is is what it is, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, you, yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. Um, And I want to pick up on one theme you mentioned, which is you mentioned that um, a a lot of the sort of worst perpetrators in the think tank world are climate deniers. so, when I was reading your book, the issue of climate change really stuck out to me. Um, any effort to address this crisis has to occur on an incredibly tight timeline. We have about a decade to ward off catastrophic scenarios. There was recently a study which found that we might only have five years until we potentially pass the one point five degrees Celsius threshold beyond which, you know we we could see catastrophic effects, superstorms, large numbers of human deaths. This is all very dire um so looking beyond think tanks how sort of how are scientific institutions overall complicit in this crisis and how do we change that on a short timeline i take your point that we need social and economic transformation uh but these things take time so i'm curious how you think we can transform what's wrong with science in a short enough timeline to meet the reality that we're facing
2: Okay. First of all, I'll say that uh, they call that an anthropogenic uh, existential crisis, and uh, it is. The first uh, anthropogenic existential crisis that we faced was the threat of nuclear holocaust. And for some reason, that seems to have been put on the back, back burner. It's, it's still probably more threat- threatening than ever, because now instead of just the Soviet Union and the United States, you have eight or nine countries that have these things. And uh, North Korea could start a war. The United States could start a war with North Korea and the world could end. Human race, the human race could be uh, extinguished. Uh, Some people say that's an exaggeration. It's not an exaggeration, but I I won't go into that now. Uh, So the second anthropogenic existential crisis, I think, is the climate change that you're talking about. And now we have a third one, the idea that this pandemic may not be the last pandemic. There could be one uh, uh, even more frightening, more deadly, that could really wipe out enough of the human race that the economies would absolutely collapse, and uh, the human race just wouldn't be viable anymore. So we have three existential crises, and one of them is the one you ask about, which I'll I'll try to address now. Uh, And as you say, we're on a short timeline. Uh, If we can do something in the next 10 or 15 years, we we might be okay. Uh, And what are the scientific institutions most complicit? Well, the problem is that the scientific institutions are complicit But they're not the ones that matter. The institutions that matter are governmental and industrial and corporate. The thing about the scientific institutions is that I will argue, and I I think most independent people would, would agree, that science and technology are already capable of solving this crisis. And it's only the political roadblock standing in the way. So if we're going to do something, take action, it's really got to be against the political roadblock. And I'm not saying we have to go out with a sign that says socialism now. I mean, obviously, that's uh, not effective. <laughs> there are things that we can do now, but it's not challenging scientific institutions per se. It's challenging the political and corporate institutions. Um Uh let, let me just say that the reason for that is that uh, the fossil fuel industries are trillion dollar, there's that word again, trillion dollar industries. Uh, the global oil market is estimated at 1.7 trillion per year. And the coal industry is also valued at more than a trillion dollars. You know, we've been talking a lot lately about why was it so difficult to end slavery. And the reason was because slaves were property and investments. And a lot of wealthy people had their whole wealth invested in slaves. And they fought tooth and nail. They fought a civil war to stop uh, slavery from ending because they were protecting their investments. And you can imagine what these investors who have trillions of dollars invested in oil and coal are going to do to uh, to fight us when we're demanding an end to it. Nonetheless, that's what we have to do. Um, we, the first thing I always say, and, and uh, a lot of people have been saying it, especially in England, we are many, they are few. For every one of the billionaires, there's 100,000 or so of us. We have to mobilize the many. We have to organize, organize, organize. You may have heard that somewhere before. What do we have to organize? What do we have to demand? We have to demand, leave the fossil fuels in the ground. And we can also uh, demand uh, some specific steps in that direction. Nationalization of the oil and coal industries. We also have to fight against the Trump administration's deregulation campaign. You have to demand regulation of pollution controls, and not only demand regulations, but demand rigorous enforcement of reg- regulations. Regulations with teeth is what they call them. Now, I, I take some uh, inspiration, a lot of inspiration, from the Black Lives Matter upsurge of recent months. They went from a small group of marginalized activists to a massive movement Capable of shaping uh, of shaking up politics as usual. So uh, that's basically, if you ask me, what what do I advocate doing now? Uh, it's to begin organizing to uh, uh, you know demand uh, like leaving the fossil fuels in the ground and uh, and doing that by uh, nationalizing the oil and coal industry.
1: Well, thank, thank you for that. Um, I, I appreciate that. It does feel important to not conflate the economy or, around slavery, which um, was, you know, a horrific stain on our country and whose legacy is continued today. And the fossil fuel economy, those feel like separate things that we shouldn't try to conflate. But I take your point. Um, and I agree. I think that the The uprisings taking place across the country against policing, against anti-Black racism, um, are showing how quickly the Overton window can shift. Um, Things that were that that were not part of the national conversation somewhat recently are now part of it. Um, The idea of abolishing police and prisons, um, the idea of defunding police. Um, So yeah, I think that we're definitely seeing how quickly things can change when they're are large numbers of people being incredibly courageous and in taking to the streets. Um, exactly.
2: I love, I love the mom Tifa.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of people um, being really brave and they're, they're risking, um, they're taking a lot of personal risks. Uh, you know, there are heavy charges being inflicted. There's an incredible police violence. Um, there's also um, police police, uh, police and jailers exposing people to COVID risk, you know, Coke County jail here in Chicago, where I live is um, a huge vector. It's one of the biggest vectors of COVID-19 in the country. There was a study that found it's responsible for 15% of all COVID cases in Illinois. Um, so, so if you get arrested at a protest and then you send the night to jail, you're taking it another risk. So I think that it's just really amazing. Um, we're just seeing how, people being really brave and acting collectively can change the Overton window. And, you know, I think we are seeing really powerful climate justice movements. Uh, a lot of them anchored in the global South that have been doing climate work for a very long time. So, you know, I take your point that um, it, it has to be people power that changes the situation. Um you know, and I know, I know we are spending a lot of this time sort of bragging on science as an institution, but, you know, is it your sense that there have been scientists who have been played a, a good role in sounding the alarm on climate change? Is there anyone that you think deserves credit, any particular point of hope that you want to point to as far as the role that U.S. institutions of science are playing in the climate discussion?
2: Uh, Yeah, there have been a lot of positive uh, examples of uh, the science information movement that began back in the 1950s, I believe. Um, And uh, it began around the whole question of the uh, nuclear threat and fallout. And uh, a lot of scientists joined that. Uh, There is a huge reaction to the uh, Bush-Cheney administration's uh, no, actually, it was the Reagan administration's Star Wars program. If you remember, SDI, the um, the whole idea that they would be able to uh, shoot uh, Russian missiles out of the sky or out of space. You know, when an ICBM goes up, it goes into outer space. And so the whole idea of SDI was to shoot those things down before they came back down. And uh, a lot of very... Uh, Important scientists, a lot of uh, well-known scientists, plus a lot of rank-and-file scientists, joined in the the uh, effort to to try to convince people not to join that. Don't don't work for that thing. First of all, it's it's absurd. It was uh, the the technology uh, could not have worked. No, uh, you you, t- you tend to be very careful to say it could not. Uh, Because a lot of things that looked like they couldn't work have turned out to work. But it was such a a crazy scheme, uh, devised by Edward Teller, who was uh, nuts. Anyway, uh, the, the resistance to that was good. But at the same time, the resistance showed the limitations of the resistance. Because the funding that the Reagan administration put into that was able to buy off enough scientists to do the project, do the work that they wanted to do, and never come up with anything. But my idea is that it succeeded in its real goal, which isn't what we're told the real goal was. The real goal is to spend a lot of money on, on, uh, on the military and on military science uh, because it wastes money. And this gets into what I was talking about in the book called Weaponized Keynesianism. I don't know if you want to go there now. But, uh, oh, OK. Well, weaponized Keynesianism is a theoretical explanation or why, we see what we see, this absurd, enormous trillion and a quarter dollars a year spent on the military. Why? Why do we have to do that? And they say, oh, it's for defense. Well, we know better than that. I mean, maybe, maybe not everybody does, but <laughs> can you imagine? We want to, The Obama administration proposed spending 30 trillion dollars to upgrade our nuclear arsenal. And of course, when Trump came along, oh boy, yes, let's do that. So we are planning to spend 30 trillion, not billion, trillion dollars to upgrade the nuclear arsenal to defend us from terrible enemies that want to kill us. Well, who are the terrible enemies? There are a bunch of irregular fighters, maybe a few thousand irregular fighters in the Middle East who have IEDs, uh, improvised explosive devices. And we're going to spend $30 trillion to upgrade a nuclear arsenal that could already wipe out the world 30 times over. <laughs> I mean, the absurdity of it. That's what I want this book to begin to do, is to begin for people to understand how absurd this Elephant in the room is that we're not talking about, and we need to really, uh, uh, and we have to. One one thing we have to do is really uh, go against that whole thing that it's for defense. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this, but uh, for the first couple hundred years of the United States, there was no Defense Department. The same thing was called the Department of War. And that's what it was. That wasn't a euphemism. It was a Department of War. And that's what it was doing. That's what it was for. It was above board and honest. When they had a war, the War of 1812 or the Civil War or anything like that, the Department of War was leading it. So then after World War II, about 1949, they changed the name. They changed it to the Department of Defense. Well, that's public relations, you know. What do they call it? Rebranding. They just rebranded it to make us think that we have to spend these incredible, incredible amounts of our national resources for, for this uh for the military to defend us. And it's false, and we have to keep hammering that. Uh, the other thing that makes me encouraged is that you mentioned the defunding of the police. There's been a little bit of that seeping over into the idea of defending the military. Now, of course, what they mean, they don't mean defunding the military, which is what I would like to see. What they mean is 10% less or something like that. But even so, the phrase defunding the military has, has begun to seep into the national conversation, and I like that. I think that's a good thing, and I think we need to grab hold of it and take it farther.
1: Well, thank you. Um, so you ultimately argue that the solution to what ill science is to, quote, replace the current economic system with one not controlled by corporate power or addicted to military spending. That momentous transformation can prevail only on a global scale, but the road to accomplishing this runs through the U.S., unquote. Um, Can you explain what you mean by this and just talk a little bit about some social experiments in transforming the economic system? And I know an attempt at a different political and economic system does not have to be perfect for it to offer important pointers and lessons.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Well, you say, uh, yes, I did say that in the book. I said (laughs) the uh, transformation to a socialist world. Let's do away with the... uh, The other terminology and to say world socialism can prevail, it can prevail only on a global scale and the road runs through the United States. What does that mean? It means that those of us here in the United States who want social change have a special responsibility in the fight to achieve it. What we need is a new kind of economic system that's not controlled by a corporate power and is not addicted to military spending. And I say addicted to military spending because my view, and when I was talking about uh, weaponized Keynesianism, that is that the United States is addicted to military spending. The United States economy is as it is currently uh, structured. Uh, and that means that we, we can demand, and I think we should demand, that the money spent for the military be spent for the schools. But the problem, and and that's a good demand, because to the extent that anybody tries to do it, it's going to make the capitalist system impossible. My view of weaponized Keynesianism is that the capitalist system cannot exist without massive, increasing deficit spending on military projects. Now, that's in the book, and some people may want to argue with it, but uh, I'll I'll just throw it out there for now. Uh, So where was I? Okay, first of all, the transition to a socialist world can't be done on a local or a piecemeal basis. Capitalism is a global system. and has to be replaced globally, but that's not gonna happen all at once. It's gonna happen in various nation states like Germany, uh, the United States. In the 20th century, they tried it in uh, in Russia and then in China. And, what the Russian and Chinese experiences sh- showed, they didn't, they didn't create socialism. Uh, I know it, sometimes they like to con- uh, claim that they did, but I think an independent assessment would say they never came close to socialism. But what they did do was they created post-capitalist societies. So you have capitalist societies, and in the 20th century, you had two huge Post-capitalist societies—that's the Soviet Union China. and China—and then by the end of the twentieth century, they had reverted to capitalism. And the reason for that is why you can't have uh, well, capitalism is a world system, and you can't have socialism on a half of a world system because as long as capitalism is there, it's going to be hostile, and it's going. And the capitalist countries at the moment are more advanced, and. Uh, they're going to eventually wear down any post-capitalist society that doesn't achieve uh, a global scale. Um, So anyway, uh, we should try to achieve a socialist United States. I'm not saying we shouldn't, obviously, because that's the step toward achieving the ultimate goal of a socialist planet Earth. And the road to a socialist world runs through the United States because the United States, as it is today, is the main roadblock to the goal. Now, you ask about what can we learn from some of the uh, post-capitalist experiments. Well, we had 70 years of a post-capitalist uh, experiment in the Soviet Union. That's a pretty good experiment. We could learn a lot from that if there's anything to learn. And then we had 40 more years of a post-capitalist experiment in China. And we can learn from that. So uh, let me. Uh, there's a lot of lessons to learn, but since we're talking about science, let me go back to that. Let's think about what the United, uh, the USSR, and China were able to achieve uh, in uh, in the in the realm of science. I I think that everybody's aware that the Soviet Union was not a science. I mean, Russia was not a scientific power before 1917. And it probably took 10 or 15 or 20 years before it began to really get going. But by the time of World War II, it was uh, a major world scientific power. And after World War II, the two major superpowers in in science, as well as everything else, were the United States and the Soviet Union. So you look at the experiment of the Soviet Union and see that they were able to create a powerful scientific establishment, and that did a couple of things. First of all, it proved that you don't need the profit motive to create or uh, to improve science. You don't need the profit motive to to build a scientific establishment. And uh, the second thing is that these post-capitalist societies, not only the Soviet Union and China, but others like them, have a tremendous advantage in that they're able to focus, mobilize, and focus the resources of the whole society on projects that they want to achieve. And that's why they were so successful in, uh, in catching up, in a sense, to the United States And I think everybody remembers and was shocked by Sputnik. Uh, It showed that at one point, the Soviet Union was actually in advance of the United States because Sputnik didn't have any, you know, yeah, it was exciting to see that little thing buzzing around the, the earth. But what Sputnik proved was that the Soviet Union could launch an ICBM, could actually send a nuclear bomb to the United States. And it really shook up the American establishment. And it really uh, had a lot to do with the the, the uh, shift of a lot of resources into uh, uh, military science. So uh, those are the main lessons, I think, to be learned from the Soviet and Chinese experience. But in the final analysis, they really didn't develop their science uh in a way that would be desirable for a socialist society. In other words, it was all big governmental projects designed to uh, serve the state. Um, It wasn't things designed for human needs, basically. And so on a much, much, much smaller scale, we now have an example, and I think everybody can probably in this audience knows where I'm heading on this, of a society that is post-capitalist, still exists today as a post-capitalist society, and yet didn't have a a science establishment that was devoted toward competing directly with the United States in military hardware or military technology. I'm talking about Cuba, of course. Cuba's only 10 million people at the time of their revolution, so it's a small experiment. But even so, what they've been able to achieve is enormously important for the subject that we're dealing with here. Uh, So why didn't they uh, turn their scientific establishment toward toward military things like China and and the Soviet Union did? And I don't blame China and the Soviet Union for doing that. They had to do it. But Cuba just knew it was ridiculous. uh, They they had no way of competing with the United States militarily, so they relied for their national security on the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union essentially had their back. And they also relied for the great prestige of their revolution that it had gained throughout Latin America and the Third World. So that was the defense they had of their for their national security. And so far it's worked. And I hope it continues to. Meanwhile, they had this uh, centralized, focused scientific establishment and what were they going to do with it? They turned it to the, or it, it became a science for human needs. And above all, for a public health system, second to none in the world. And I think we've seen that very, uh, very uh, clearly in this whole COVID. Uh, you see the United States flailing and, uh, you know, trying to respond to this pandemic. And meanwhile, tiny little Cuba is sending medical help. To uh, advanced capitalist countries in the European Union. And it's mind-boggling what they've been able to accomplish. And so I think what that's uh, uh, what it's it's just shown what a, a science for human needs is possible. Science doesn't have to be the way we see it here in the United States, all devoted to finding ways to kill people better. But a science for human needs is not a utopian dream. You can see it at work in China. They've gone to the top of the international uh, microbiological and medical sciences. Uh, with And the way to think about it is if they could do so much with so little in the way of resources, what could the gigantic resources of the United States do in terms of alleviating hunger, alleviating poverty, alleviating disease, and alleviating all forms of human wretchedness. And I think that's where we have to think, and that's why I use Cuba as an example of the possibility of what a science for human needs could actually accomplish. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox now.
1: No, I. I that was a very broad question. You covered a lot of ground. I appreciate that. Um, There's a lot of political theory and historical analysis to unpack there, and I don't have time to ask follow-up questions right now. But but hopefully we can get to some in the Q and A. But we're running a little short of time, so I think I'm just going to ask one more question, and then we're going to turn it over to people. Um, in the audience who have some questions, um, so oh,
2: could I could I interrupt just for a second? I just okay. want to make one thing really clear: uh, the tragedy of American science didn't begin begin with Trump. Uh, I think I've made that clear just in context here, but I just want to say that uh, that brings up the question: When did the tragedy of American science begin? And I date it to almost exactly almost to the, to, well to the week seventy five years ago. One week from today is August the 6th, and it's the 75th anniversary of when an atomic bomb was dropped on a city full of civilians. And I call that the beginning of the tragedy of American science. Slightly after that, you had the Cold War, and ever since, it's all been downhill, as far as I'm concerned. So, always your last question.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. Thanks. So, um... In the epilogue, you said that COVID-19 was made worse by an abysmal failure of leadership on the part of the federal government. Um, I think that this is something that many of us are feeling on a visceral level. Many of us have been sheltering in place for months. Um, uh, some of us have been um, forced to work by economic circumstances, um, yet there's been no, no social progress towards containment, and then millions and millions of people are in free fall. Enhanced unemployment is about to dry up. 30% of U.S. households missed their housing payments in June. So the situation in the U.S. is very, very bad. Um, In your eyes, how is the government failing, and how does this relate to the tragedy of American (laughs) science?
2: Do I really have to answer that? I mean, the government, the failure of the Trump administration to meet this challenge is so... Obvious to everyone. I mean, there's nothing in the national conversation, oh well, except on Fox News, of course, and and in Trump's base, that isn't aware of that. So I don't think I have to uh, say too much about it. It's not only been inadequate; it's been downright obstructionist. He starts off calling it a hoax and a Democratic Party plot and not real, and meanwhile, is killing thousands of people. Uh, two months into the uh, crisis, he appoints Mike Pence to head it up, to head up the response. Now who is Mike Pence? Mike Pence is the guy who has denied climate change loudly. He's denied that cigarettes kill people loudly. He's denied that uh, evolution has anything to do with uh, uh, natural selection or anything like that. So he's been anti-science his entire career. And for, for Trump to appoint him to head up the response, it's just an, indicate, an indication of the low esteem in which he holds science and scientists and uh, and even rationality. So uh, and, and then because of that, they they weakened the FDA and the CDC, and especially the weakening of the CDC was was uh, it's terrible because they bungled their first assignment. Their first assignment of the CDC was to uh, develop a diagnostic, diagnostic test. At that time, the uh, WHO had already distributed millions of tests and offered them to the United States, and the Trump administration refused them. Well, oh, no, no, uh, the CDC is going to uh, produce our tests. So the CDC produced, t- produced tests, and they turned out to be flawed and unusable. It was an inexcusable delay that cost thousands and thousands of lives of of Americans. Uh, it's it's beyond anything I can uh, say in terms of characterizing it. More than that, though, uh, the pandemic revealed a, a shocking lack of preparedness of the American public health system. But that that wasn't that didn't be- begin with Trump and Pence. That began 40 years ago with Reagan, and and the whole. Uh, neoliberal uh, turn to the the idea that corporations should only care about maximizing their profits so the, the hospital corporations took that as a cue that all they have to do is uh, you know maximize their profits and they found that to to create excess emergency, uh, ICU beds and hospital space and so forth for emergencies to have that is not profitable. It costs them money to hold those. They don't want to do that. So they cut it to the bone. And what we, we're we paying the price now because uh, according to a, a Trump administration, of course, I think Trump this kind of slipped by and they, the Trump administration was putting out some statistics that I think the Trump administration would have liked to have censored if they had been more uh, adept but uh, this one got out. Trump administration statistic in March 2020 said that there are 65,000 ICU beds in the United States and this crisis could require millions. (laughs) So you see the the problem here. (laughs) Uh, The I guess that's all I have to say about the pandemic per se, but uh, I think it would be good to get into the um, the uh, economic collapse that's accompanied it. I mean, I think that's, uh, I don't want to say even more frightening, but it's very, very frightening. Uh, the pandemic has led, as we all know, to a rapid collapse of large segments of the American economy. And the worst part in terms of people like ourselves and the normal people, ordinary people, is the tens of millions, tens of millions of workers who were made unemployed by it. I think the first lesson we have to take from that is that the system, the economic system that permitted this, is unstable and unreliable. The current system of production, distribution, and consumption of goods and services is unreliable and unstable, and we have to do something about it. It's put us in a very dangerous moment, like the one between World War I and World War II. The economic collapse in Europe at that time of the 30s led to a social breakdown, which led to an opportunity for socialists to transform society, and they didn't. The socialist movement in Europe was divided and fighting against each other, and it left an opening for the fascist movement to take over and as we know, it did horrendous damage that we'll never get—you know—be able to uh, to compensate for. So that's what we're facing in at the current moment. Uh, it's it's really that that dire. So people say, well, will the United States economy recover, and if so, when? And of course, the only answer to that is nobody knows. We're in uncharted territory here. There are optimists who say, "Oh, there's going to be a V-shaped recovery, fueled by pent-up demand." Okay, maybe to some degree, at least a partial, uh, it might happen. But there are other pessimists who are establishment economists, not uh, not socialists, not Marxists. That they say that we have, they say we may have entered a permanent doom loop, and. Uh, you know, you can't discount that possibility. What we can be quite sure of, unfortunately, is that many of the tens of millions of laid off workers may never get their jobs back. They may never recover their livelihoods. And as you said, they may uh, there may be millions upon millions of people kicked out of their housing because they can't pay their rent. This is all possible. Small businesses will fail in large numbers. We know that. That a lot of them have had to close and a lot of them won't reopen. And what does that mean? It means that when there is if there is a partial recovery, the fruits of it are gonna to go to the bigger businesses that survive, the major corporations. And that's gonna exacerbate the unsustainable inequality that's is the the central problem facing the world today. All of these other problems are subordinate to the economic inequality in the world today and in the United States. And uh, that's what this this, uh, uh, economic collapse that we're in the middle of right now and don't know where it's gonna go, threatens. Uh, I suspect that the system's limitations are only uh, beginning to be exposed um, I want to say something about the three trillion dollar bailout that we had before back in March, I think it was. It's already inadequate. They're talking about they need another one and they're quibbling over one trillion dollars. They need three trillion more right now and they're quibbling over one trillion. And I'm talking about trillion dollars, like it's pocket change, but it isn't. but they need three trillion dollars. And what if there's a second wave? They'll need three trillion more, and three trillion more, and a third wave, three trillion more. These bailouts—they uh, can't go on. I mean, everybody knows that. People say, "Oh, but the American government controls its own currency, so of course it can just keep printing money as much as it needs." Yes, it can. But if you, by the time they get to the fourth or fifth, three trillion dollar bailout, prices are going to skyrocket. I mean, that's what causes inflation. Uh, It can't go on. Something's got to give. And then what? Well, that's the question I'm asking. And uh, you said uh, it ends on an optimistic note, the book, and I hope it does. But it's mixed. We're in a terribly dangerous situation, and we do have an opportunity here. Uh, But uh, let's get busy, folks.
1: Thank you so much for that. Um, so I am going to share a few questions from people who are watching. Um, so Phyllis Kittler says, congratulations on your book, Cliff. Can you speculate on how the tragedy of American science is going to influence the scientific endeavor to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic? Actually, I feel like we already covered that. So sorry, I'll I'll skip past that one. I'd say so. And, but I wanted uh, to, to pass yeah. on congratulations. That's very nice. Thank you. Um, So from Corin Bowen, um, how do you see STEM education fitting into this problem, and what are potential solutions?
2: Good point. I have to think for just a second. Uh, I I didn't really cover that in the book, but it's uh, very important Uh, for for one thing. the STEM education system is also very much uh, uh, corrupted by, by uh, corporate funding, and in fact, I did mention that in the book in the chapter on the academic-industrial uh, complex. Uh, so the first answer is that uh, the tragedy of American science has already deeply affected STEM education I should make a point here, though, that when I talk about the corruption of American science, it doesn't mean that American science can't produce stuff that's good and produce good results and produce workable technology. Of course it does, but it's just not not trustworthy ever. But the problem is that the corporate influences tend to shift the attention of science from one thing to another. Uh, For one thing, uh, they they fund a lot, a lot of the STEM education is funded by the military industrial complex and they're trying to woo students into that field of science. So that's part of the the tragedy and uh, the way the STEM system uh, influences it. Um, You know, I know there's a lot more that could be said about this, but I'm gonna cut it off there.
1: Yeah, I remember um, reading somewhat recently that Raytheon, the weapons manufacturer, was working with Girl Scouts of America to promote um, STEM science among girls, which is such a cynical effort to sort of rehabilitate their image and make it appear that this horrible weapons manufacturer is um, on the side of social justice and opportunities for girls.
2: Exactly, and on that same note, I I, uh, was alerted recently to an effort by a number of uh, military contractors to target uh, the historically black colleges uh, to try to woo minority students, uh, African-American students, into the uh, military industrial complex. Uh, in order to make their quotas for, uh, you know, they want to be, uh, you know, it's all phony, but uh, yeah. uh, exactly what you said.
1: Um, well, we have one more question. So um, this is from Nazar Um Thank you for elaborating on the entanglement of capitalism, militarism, and colonialism with science. Could you address how this molds the dominant ideologies of science history and scientific establishment.
2: How, can you read that last sentence, how it does sure. what?
1: Could you address how this molds the dominant oh. ideologies of scientists and scientific establishment?
2: Okay, molds is the question. Well, quite obviously, uh, half of it is, or more than half of it is molded by the military industrial complex. Uh, and that's because of the uh, colonialist nature of uh, the American military. What else can I say? Uh, I did want to say one other thing about uh, STEM education, and uh, that is the question, and this also uh, uh, relates to that question, too. Uh, It has to do with, if if a young person came to me today and said, uh, well, I'm studying science, I'm, uh, I'm in the STEM studies, I'm a mathematician, or I'm a physicist, or I'm a social scientist, and by the way, I count social sciences very importantly among the sciences in this book. Uh, I, I want that to be made clear. Um, so anyway, if a young person came to me and said, uh, look i'm I'm in I'm studying science. I want to be a scientist, but I don't want to work for these people. Uh, if i got to, if they offer me a job, should I turn it down or if I start working for one and I find out they're working on like for uh, artificial intelligence, and I want to do artificial intelligence research, but I find out it's being used in nefarious ways, which it is, uh, (laughs) for the most part. Artificial intelligence uh, is used for facial recognition. They put that on these uh, drones, uh, automated drones, that go and search crowds in the Middle East to pick out faces, follow people home, and kill them, along with their neighbors. Uh, you know, so it's really nefarious stuff, and if a young person said, "I don't want to do that, I would understand it um, I actually my first job out of college was with Lockheed uh, <laughs> aircraft Company, and uh, they were making c one thirties and c one forty ones for the Vietnam War, and I became extremely against the Vietnam War, and I quit If somebody said, "Should I quit a job like that I, I, not necessarily." Uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a big sacrifice. It took me a year to find another job paying a third what I was being paid before. but still, I, I was glad I did it. Uh, but uh, anyway, it, rather than quit the job, try to start a movement among scientists and engineers to resist military funding. Now, that's a big order, but uh, that's that's much more useful than just quitting your job as a personal protest. And I have one more thing to say about it, and that is there's an organization that's uh, very much dedicated to what that last questioner was asking about, and they put out a wonderful magazine, and I happen to have a copy of it here, called Science for the People. Can you see that on screen? Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to recommend that Uh, organization and give a big shout out to it and that magazine. So any of your listeners that want to talk about the colonialist nature of science and what we can do about it, uh, get involved, organize, be part of Science for the People. And there you have it.
1: Well, that is such a good note to end on. Thank you so much for that. Um, Thank you so much, Cliff. This has been a really interesting conversation. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, Thank you for sharing your perspective and your research with us. My pleasure. (laughs) uh, Before we close, I want to remind people that if you're in a position to make a donation, no matter how small, please consider giving the Haymarket books and please register now for the following events. Um, Next Tuesday, August 4th, we have the Artistry of Black Organizing in the 21st Century. And on Wednesday, August 5th, we have Voices from the Front Lines, Healthcare Workers and the Fight Against COVID. Um, Thank you again to Amanda for- Remember
2: August 6th as well, Hiroshima Day.
1: Oh, okay, cool. Thanks for pointing that out. So I just want to thank Amanda again for live captioning this event. We really appreciate it. And thanks so much to Haymarket Books for sponsoring this live stream.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.